Hello. We're grappling with greed today on Search for Truth radio broadcast with Bible teacher Brian Johnston. And that is, to clarify, we're dealing with how to confront the possibility of greed hindering our witness as disciples of Christ. Now, this radio series of broadcasts is called Going the Distance. There's 12 programmes altogether. And in the study, we look at how Satan might want to stop us going the distance. He might put things in our way, such as pride, anger, discouragement, failure, doubts, anxieties, temptations. Uh, There's no end to it, and this time it's greed. So let's explore greed now with Brian. Thanks, John. We're familiar nowadays with the term prosperity gospel and its preoccupation with money. But money has a long history of distorting God's message to humanity. The case of Balaam is infamous in the Bible. He was perhaps the original prophet for hire in a cash-for-curses bargain that was struck with the enemies of God's ancient people Israel. Balaam, at times, seems to say the right things and indicate a readiness to do God's will, but he can't seem to shrug off a deeper motivation that was purely mercenary. In the end, it's the pool of money that's strongest, and he manipulates his way to the money he desired all along, by hook and by crook. No less than four writers and four New Testament letters point to his example as an incident that badly affected God's people and from which God wants us to learn lessons today. The story's in the book of Numbers, and you'll find references to it in 1 Corinthians 10, 2 Peter 2, Jude verse 11 and Revelation 2 verse 14. Looking at the story then in its historical setting first, we're presented with an intriguing spiritual battle featuring Moses on the one hand as an intercessor for God's people and on the other hand he's over against Balaam, a famous soothsayer engaged by the enemies of God's people. Here's what we find in Numbers chapter 22. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed." The two major factors in the ensuing drama that engulfs the people of God back then are Balaam's craving for cash and the people's weakness for women. Balaam is manipulative enough to exploit the latter when he discovers, as he'd suspected all along, I'm sure, that God wouldn't permit him to publicly curse his people. This was the ace card he kept up his sleeve, the backup strategy he'd used to make sure his greed for money was satisfied. He would counsel Balak, the enemy king, how immorality and idolatry were the way to seduce Israel. But that comes later. First, let's read how Balaam received the messengers at the very first. 
This is again in chapter 22 from verse 16. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me, for I will indeed honour you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Sounds like a good answer, doesn't it? But what do we know about Balaam? Well, he had fame and fortune, and seemingly possessed of a reputation. Why else would he be consulted by kings? Remarkably, he was someone who met the Lord, as well as being used to deliver his message. Balaam did speak truth about God and his people, even if his heart was never in it, since he was always eyeing up the bottom line of what was in it for himself. Greed was his downfall, and he'll be eternally the loser. Next, we read of how, and this is Numbers chapter 23, God met Balaam and put a word in Balaam's mouth. Return to Balak, and you shall speak thus. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. His direct, public pronouncements were kept on message by God. That is, God overruled all that came from his mouth every time. If it wasn't obvious to Balaam before what God's will was, it was completely clear by the end. Except it wasn't the end, because Balaam doesn't give up on his chance to earn a king's ransom. He locates himself nearby and indirectly continues private tuition, presumably for the same fee that he's still got his eye on. And so we read now at the beginning of Numbers chapter 25, While Israel remained at Acacia Grove, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Perhaps what we see from this, among other things, is that we can always be sure that Satan has a plan B. How does this work itself out here? Well, after plainly seeing that God has no intention of diluting his blessings for Israel, even in the slightest way, Balaam should have gone home. Lesson learnt, but he doesn't. And God allows this, without overruling it this time. God is sovereign over Satan. The devil doesn't have a free hand in this world. It's as if he's on a leash and can do no more than God permits. In other words, he needs to get permission. For example, as with Simon Peter, where Jesus discloses in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Let's not forget also the case of Job. The Lord said to Satan, behold, Job is in your hand, only spare his life. I suppose we can only draw the conclusion that God sees an ongoing role for Satan as essential for his purposes in the world. That's because if God wanted to, Satan could be thrown into the lake of fire now, instead of at the end of the age. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's Revelation 20. His complete judgment is coming and sure, but not yet. 
On the contrary, no enemy can ultimately prosper against those of us who have given our lives to Christ. However, and we also learn this lesson from the incident of Balaam, we, just like the people of God then, can self-destruct in this life by not taking the escape route God always provides whenever we are tested. Some of God's testings can be through Satan being permitted to tempt us to crave evil things and to covet and to act immorally. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices, but we remain vulnerable. Our souls can never be lost, but we can permit the destruction of our lives of potential service. Let's see how it ended with the Moabites. Still in Numbers chapter 25, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks, with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor. In fact, Moses' last act was to take God's vengeance on Moab, including Balaam. And when he did so, the Israelite army suffered no casualties, and the warriors were to later be purified from even such contact as they had with the enemy in war. That brings us to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. The words greed or covetousness are used to translate a Greek word which means a desire to have more and it's used in a bad sense. The desire for more. But what's the connection with idolatry? It's this, isn't it? It's thinking an object that I crave will deliver me from dissatisfaction and meaninglessness. Isn't that the appeal of the advertisers? Do you remember the essence of Eve's temptation back in Genesis chapter 3? It was craving something outside the will of God for her. God had furnished the garden with more than enough to satisfy, but she came to desire something more. Later on, we see that breaking the tenth command against covetousness can be seen to be breaking the first command against being truly satisfied with God and only God. Our life is shaped by our deepest affection. There's a phrase in Latin that summarises the idea that the shape of our deepest affections is the shape of our lives. It's lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. It means the rule of worship is the rule of belief, is the rule of life. That still needs some unpacking. What it's saying is this, our deepest affections, what we are focused on most devotedly, shapes the way we believe and in turn the way we live. Of course, the ancient Christians who first used this saying did so with Christ in mind as the object, being aware that the things they said when they prayed, their deepest affections not only defined their ultimate beliefs, but ultimately defined their lives. No matter our object of worship, the same is true of our lives today. That which claims the most thorough part of our hearts and minds is evidenced by our use of time and money and shapes the whole of our lives, in fact. We live in a time when focusing our minds on one thing is a challenge because there are so many options vying for our attention. We get easily distracted. Satisfaction in worship isn't likely where God is only one of many possibilities in a never-ending, ever-expanding web of activities and diversions. 
We found the antidote to greed when we come to the realisation, I already have enough. Then we can say to God with the psalmist, I have no good besides you. When we realise that God is enough, when he's all we desire, and we consider that Christ is all, then we are truly blessed, knowing Christ alone can satisfy. Finally, I'd like to remind you that it's useful to have the transcript book of these 12 talks. You can do it yourself by downloading a copy from churchesofgod.info forward slash media and you could print your own copy then. But if you're not able to do that and need to request a hard copy book, just write in and ask for Going the Distance and you can use email or post. Here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, the Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So many thanks for being with us today. It's been great to enjoy your company, and I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when Brian will be looking at the issue of discord and division, particularly in a church. So do join us next week, but until then, it's goodbye and best wishes from Brian, David, our singers, and me, John. So see you again soon, and may God richly bless you. <laughs>